0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Ellen Wormter. Uh, I guess another pronunciation is Wemter, you know, if you're German, and we're talking about uh, sleep technology and sleep trends, and Ellen's a board-certified family nurse practitioner. So uh, thanks for coming, Ellen. How are you doing?
1: Thank you for having me. Doing great.
0: Yeah. Well, tell me about your work as it uh, interfaces with sleep. What do you do?
1: Um, I work in a sleep clinic, a sleep medicine clinic in Charlottesville, Virginia, with uh, Dr. Chris Winter, and um, I see a variety of sleep disorders here, uh, sleep apnea, insomnia, and um, also narcolepsy.
0: And out of the conditions, um, are there ones that seem to be more prevalent, especially lately, or are they just more prevalent than people think? Like, what is your overall observation from working there?
1: There is a lot of sleep apnea. I would say that's probably the majority of our patients. Um, insomnia tends to, to crop up as well, although a lot of that can be treated in primary care and we kind of get the harder cases of insomnia. Um, restless legs, fairly common. Again, that's something that, that can be managed in primary care as well, but uh, we also manage it here at the sleep clinic. Um, and then narcolepsy is is actually, it's considered rare, but it's under-recognized. So there's a good bit of it out there.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think, it, you know, I, I know it's a serious thing, but I know people make fun of narcolepsy, like in the movies and stuff like that. And uh,
1: Exactly. Yeah, some, I
0: some think some that's... It, well, let's talk about narcolepsy just for a few minutes. Is it, I mean, is it like in the movies, you know, are you talking to someone and all of a sudden the person falls asleep? Or what is narcolepsy actually like?
1: Exactly. That That's such a good point, is that I think there's not a lot of good... Press there 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 aren't a lot of good depictions of what narcolepsy is actually like for people and what living with narcolepsy is actually like and and that's why it can be difficult to recognize and unfortunately. In some of the, you know, things that you see in TV or hear about, it becomes almost a joke. It's actually a pretty um, significant chronic neurological disorder that affects the brain's ability to control sleep-wake cycles. So there's this instability between sleep and wake, um, where they can't control very well, you know, their ability to stay awake, and it's not really a choice for them, which is the difficult part. In fact, most Narcolepsy patients with narcolepsy are very frustrated by their inability to, you know, maintain their wakefulness. It's very, very difficult um, disease to live with. When I think about sort of what it looks like, um, most of us have you ever been, you know, driving in the city at night and you see a building and most of the lights are off, but there's like those six, six different, you know, office. Uh, offices that left their light on that night. And so you see those six (coughs) ones lit up. Yeah. So so with, with, with a regular office building, you think of it as, you know, during the day, everybody shows up to work, all the lights go on, you know, and they're awake for the day. So the office building is like your brain, the more lights that are on, the more alert and awake you are, the more lights go off, the more sleepy you are. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And in a normal person, lights on during the day, lights off at night, and a patient with narcolepsy, I picture that building as having sort of rolling blackouts, you know, there, there are just times when they're not getting the electricity, floors four through 12, just completely blackout, and that person is super super sleepy, and not a lot's going to help other than sometimes napping uh, will will increase that, or medications, which is our our sort of loneliness is to help manage through medications and other lifestyle changes. But what this person looks like, you know, when they present to us is. Excessive daytime sleepiness is your main sort of presenting feature. Uh, so having difficulty staying awake during the day. So it's not the falling over at all. Um, it's more of that excessive daytime sleepiness that that is the main presentation.
0: Are there different levels of narcolepsy? You know, some more severe than others. And you know, what do you do to mm-hmm. treat someone?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so there's two types. There's type one, which is with cataplexy, and type two that it, that's without. Cataplexy, and the, and different people uh, also have different levels of daytime sleepiness. So some people are going to be sort of managing a little bit better than others certain things make that worse like stress. Um, Cataplexy is probably where you know the falling over where we get that image and what that is is when uh, people have a strong emotion they'll have a sudden weakening of their muscles. So their knees might buckle or maybe they drop things because their grip gets loose. Uh, it can be dramatic, but it can also be pretty subtle where their jaw will get kind of slack or their eye will droop. And what's happening there is that sleep-wake instability, again, where they're going into the, um, they're having an intrusion of REM sleep uh, into their into their day. So the, uh, during REM sleep, which is what we think of as our dream sleep, our major muscle groups are paralyzed. Um, and- yeah. So what they're getting is that paralysis from the REM sleep while they're still actually awake. So they might be, you know, at a party, talking to friends, somebody takes a, tells a really funny joke, they crack up and then all of a sudden they drop their glass because their arm completely lost muscle tone during these instances, they're completely conscious. So if they have a bad episode where their knees buckle and they fall they can't move their body at all but they're completely aware that they're falling the whole time they're not passing out it's not that kind of situation so it can be pretty significantly it can significantly impact your life if that's happening um to you on a regular basis other other symptoms yeah. you can you can get really disrupted nighttime sleep so even though we think patients with narcolepsy, man, they sleep all the time. They're always sleepy. Their night sleep isn't that great. So again, it's that office building with lights coming on in the middle of the night, you know, and they're not supposed to, sort of uh, the opposite of the rolling blackouts, you know. Um, You can also get sleep paralysis, where when you're waking uh, up or falling asleep, you get that paralysis where you want to move your body and you can't. And often you have very vivid dreams that very feel very real and they can be accompanied uh, by some hallucinations. Like you think you hear someone in the room or you think you hear someone calling your name or something like that. Those are hallucinations that can come as you're going in and out of sleep. And that's that intrusion of, of REM.
0: That's horrible. I mean, it, where does narcolepsy come from? Is it, uh, a genetic thing? Is it you know are there life conditions or stress that can put you into this state, or you know how does it happen?
1: Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, so it, it does tend to run in families. Uh, there's uh a, a, we, we we're pretty sure that there's an immune system um, component to it. They did a study. Uh, this year that showed that their T cells, which is an immune cell, is more responsive to a specific neuron that makes orexin. And orexin is a neuropeptide that helps to stabilize the sleep-wake cycle. So there's a deficiency there because your your immune cells attack the neurons that make that neuropeptide, so you just don't have enough of it. Um, an environmental trigger is often involved as well. So we see clusters of narcolepsy following certain environmental situations, like when we had H1N1, we saw a spike in um, narcolepsy after um, that particular strain of flu, Uh, some strep uh, strains as well. So we think that possibly, you know, you have this response to, uh, you know, this environmental trigger or this, um, you know, thing that's happening, and then your immune system erroneously attacks those neurons that make the orexin and then that, you know, then now you have difficulty uh regulating your sleep wake cycle. There is also um human leukocyte antigen is a gene that's important in, in regulating the immune system. And variations in that gene can be found in people with narcolepsy that increase your susceptibility to developing it. Uh, but it's not always there. You know, some people might not have that gene, but still end up with narcolepsy. Sometimes, uh, you know, trauma can can damage that part of the brain that that makes the erection the and can cause narcolepsy, we think can cause narcolepsy as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So what are some treatments for narcolepsy? What can you do?
1: So treatments, um, they're crude, but they're getting better all the time. So we're always looking for more tools in our toolbox so that we can, you know, have a better way to to treat them. I think as a clinician, we have to constantly be reassessing the efficacy of what what we're using for our patients. Um, because we can put them on a medication that helps them go from extremely sleepy to less sleepy, but less sleepy still may be far above sort of normal sleepiness level. So like we're giving them a prescription for eyeglasses and they're like, Oh, this is great. I can see the mailbox at the end of the street. And we're like, okay, that's awesome, but we want you to see the house across the street or we want you to see the mountains in the dis- distance. So we're constantly trying to find, you know, options that really get them you know, to a better level of wakefulness during the day. Um, Most of the time we're starting with some sort of stimulant to wake them up during the day. Uh, So there's a couple of different medications. And I should say, you know, regarding medications. These are all my own opinions and clinical impressions. I'm not speaking on behalf of any uh, companies here, but we'll start with a, a stimulant um, specifically for narcolepsy. Sometimes we have to use a standard stimulant like you would use to treat ADHD or something like that. There's also a medication called sodium oxybate that helps uh, patients to go into a deeper sleep at night so that they have less disturbed nighttime sleep and can make as much of that orexin as possible. Um, that can be a game changer for patients, really, really um, effective medication. Um, we also work with them with lifestyle changes, you know, any, uh, tweaking that good sleep hygiene, having a regu- regular schedule, exercising, good diet, scheduling their naps, watching their caffeine and alcohol, that's all important too. And one of the newer um, one of the newer treatments that's become available to us in the last six months is uh, something called uh, the PEACE program, which is Pitolisant Expanded Access Clinical Evaluation Program. And what that is, is Pitolisant is medication that's been available in Europe since March of 2016. It's an investigational drug in the United States, so it has not yet been approved by the FDA. But because they've seen good results, with it in Europe, it's been approved for this breakthrough program. And so they've set up this program here uh, so that patients that they think may benefit from it can get access to it. So our clinic got trained to um, administer this medication, and we've signed some patients up and are, are able to get this medication for them. And what's different about it is that it goes through a different system. So um it uses histamine and histamine is um an alerting neurotransmitter and which also projects to other drivers of wakefulness, to dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, those types of things, and possibly the, the REM neuron centers as well. So trying to, you know, people take antihistamine like Benadryl, it makes them sleepy. So this is kind of the opposite. We're trying to increase the availability of histamine to try to be a stand-in for orexin to help stabilize sleep-wake.
0: Interesting. Huh. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard, I guess, modafinil, I don't know, maybe it was an old drug or a new drug. Isn't that supposed to help with narcolepsy as well?
1: Yes, and that's when I was speaking about, you know, kind of first line, what we start with a lot of times with patients is we put them on either modafinil or armodafinil, and those are have been fantastically helpful as far as bringing down that excessive daytime sleepiness a few notches. Um, and when we've added this patolisant drug, we're usually keeping them on their current medication regimen. So most of these patients are already on modafinil or armadafinil. They may also be on Adderall or Ritlin, and they may also be on the sodium oxabate at night. But then we, we're going to add in the patolasant to see if hitting it from another direction is helpful for, for them. Um, and we've had a pretty good response from it in our clinic um there's twenty eight clinic roughly twenty eight clinics in the u s that are administering it in our clinic we have about thirty six patients enrolled and I would say of those really good response from probably a third like very very favorable response, I would say another third maybe um enough of a response to remain on it. And then I have about a quarter or so that are still kind of on the fence. You know, the other third, I would say maybe on the fence. I have had a few that have discontinued it for, you know, either didn't stay with follow-up or didn't have a great response and had some mild side effects and decided not to continue it. But anytime you get, you know, a really good response out of something, I think it's with with narcolepsy patients in particular, we have so few things that we can try that it's always worth worth a shot to see if you know if we're going to see, see a market difference or not. Um, so I had a patient you know come and say I wanted to, to to get this project done for eight months, and when this medication kicked in. I took a day and I knocked it out and I never would have been able to do that. I've had people, a mother call to thank us because her son was, you know, actually came home from work and was able to make her dinner instead of just going straight to sleep. So those are quality of life, you know, changes. And we see those with some of the other medications as well, but to, like I said, to be able to add it and get, you know, tweak their their uh, regimen even higher has been fantastic
0: well how do you know if um you know if someone's i don't know they're just feeling off or they're having problems how do they know if they have narcolepsy or if they've this that or the other i mean what do they what do they do
1: yeah, well, diagnosis is, is super interesting um, because it is under recognized and di- under diagnosed. It's one out of every 2,000 Americans. We think about 3 million people worldwide have narcolepsy, but we think 50% of patients with narcolepsy aren't, we haven't found it in them yet. So usually the typical onset is between, you know, in young adulthood. Uh, oftentimes it can be young, very young, like seven, eight. Um, But usually it's showing up around high school, college, particularly when there's more demands where you can't get away with sleeping extra anymore because you have to be there to show up to your class or to take your exams and things like that. Um on average, patients have six physician visits before receiving a narcolepsy diagnosis, and there's a five to ten year delay uh in getting the diagnosis often they're misdiagnosed with other you know other things first. so I have a lot of patients that come and say, Oh my gosh, i'm just so happy I finally figured this out i've gone to all these different things i 've had every blood work done and under the sun and I, I knew something wasn't right I just didn't know what. Um, so, you know, thankfully, eventually, usually somebody ends up in the sleep clinic and we have them undergo a special kind of sleep study. They stay during the night to rule out any other sleep disorders. What if you
0: could learn about the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers in a four-day experience co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast. In Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss, Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, Suzanne Ryan of Karma, Thomas Seyfried. Uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Eed, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're going to dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You'll get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedar Sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative. Cedar Sinai is accredited by ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21.5 AMA, PRA, category one credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit metabolichealthsummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone, because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must not miss seminar.
1: Because if you had really severe sleep apnea, you could fall asleep pretty easily during the day too. Um, So we rule out that with a nighttime study. And then they stay for an MSLT, which is a multiple sleep latency test, where every two hours they put you down for a nap. And we see how quickly you fall asleep and if you go into dream sleep during that nap. Um, So really interesting. I will say about the MSLT, I'm glad we have something to help us with diagnosis. It's not a perfect test and and sometimes uh patients go to a sleep doctor and they have an MSLT, it doesn't confirm the diagnosis of narcolepsy. Let's say they only fall asleep during or they only have a, a, a rem onset period, which is a dream, in one of their naps, and you need two to meet the criteria. That doesn't mean they don't have narcolepsy. It means that in that particular instance of that picture of that day, they didn't, we didn't, we couldn't confirm it. So I think sometimes people are sent away like, no, no, you didn't have two, two dreams. So you're done, you know, you don't have narcolepsy. It's more important to kind of look at the total clinical picture and sometimes, you know, to repeat that MSLT or to treat them with what, you know, we can make a clinical diagnosis if we need to. So I would encourage people if they've been told that, but they were really borderline that they might want to, you know. See someone else about it, or consider doing a repeat study.
0: Well, what kind of things do people come to the clinic that they complain about, and are they are they usually on the right track, or are they are they surprised? Like, I didn't think I had an heart collapse; I thought I was just tired, or I didn't think I had yeah. this, but I, I was yeah. just tired. You
1: know, a lot of them are yeah. surprised. Yeah, uh, the ones that aren't usually have somebody in their family or somebody that they know, and so they know a little bit more about it, but you know as we were talking about before it's not something that is described well in in movies or literature or, or or that people talk about a whole lot and you know sometimes even when patients with narcolepsy get diagnosed and they're so relieved and they want to go out and tell everybody guess what i found the answer to my problem i have narcolepsy nobody understands that so one thing that i make sure i do with my new diagnoses um pac- new diagnosis patients is talk to them about Joining up with a support group online uh, of other people with narcolepsy because they're really the only people that are going to understand you know what they're going through. But people usually come in with excessive daytime sleepiness that we haven't found a solution to. Like they've checked their thyroid and they've made sure they don't have Lyme disease and they checked their iron to make sure they're not anemic and they've done all these things and they're still sleepy. And then when we question them further, you ever, you know, you ever have this happen or you ever have sleep paralysis, you know, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, that does happen to me. I thought that, I thought that happened to everybody. I thought that was normal. Well, you know, there, there are a certain number of people that have sleep paralysis and don't have narcolepsy, but it's also a symptom. It's a little clue that something else might be going on.
0: Hmm. You know, it may sound totally obvious, but what is uh, excessive daytime sleepiness? Does that mean like you're just tired all day long does that mean that you're tired you take a nap you wake up you're still tired like what is Yeah some yeah yeah that's that a good question.
1: So there's something we use in our sleep clinic called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale and it's a series of questions that say uh, that basically how likely would you be to fall asleep in each of these situations so I would say to you um if you had an opportunity to nap in the afternoon how likely would it be that you'd fall asleep Would it, to lie down and rest in the afternoon rather? So you have this opportunity to lie down and rest in the rest of the afternoon. Would you for sure fall asleep? You know, pretty likely. Would it be a 50 50 chance? Would it be a slight chance or is there no chance you would fall asleep? So you, you give me the answer. I write down the corresponding number to that. And then we go through the other ones, basically talking to someone, watching a TV show, um reading a book sitting quietly after a meal sitting in a waiting room or a lecture or things like that driving riding in a car for an hour without a break those types of things we add those numbers up any in a normal amount of sleepiness would be a score of under 10 10 and above is called excessive daytime sleepiness. Most people with narcolepsy are scoring in the teens, um, you know, pretty high up on the excessive daytime sleepiness scale. And it's a good way to kind of, one, flesh out sleeping, true sleepiness from fatigue, which you get fatigue, you know, fatigue is more, I'm running a marathon and I'm so exhausted. It's not, I want to lie down and sleep, it's I want to sit down and rest um so it, it helps to distinguish between those two and it also helps to have an objective measure so when they come back we can do the scale again and we can see okay did you go from a 20 to now you're a 17 well 17 is still really sleepy we'd like to get you down to nine you know if possible uh, average is about a six gotcha. or seven yeah so. hmm.
0: okay um any other complaints people have when they you know the common ones when they come to you and it tends to be Something other than what they're complaining about, or they're complaining about something that, you know, oh well, that usually means apnea, or that means this, it means that. Like, what what do people tell you is bothering them, and then what does that translate to, or what could it translate
1: mm-hmm. to? Um, well, with with sleep apnea, you do see daytime sleepiness, but you also see other things like brain fog is one I hear a lot. Um, you know, which which is kind of a general term, but basically what it means is having a hard time with concentration and attention during the day, just feeling kind of foggy and fuzzy. Um, and there are changes in the prefrontal cortex with sleep apnea that happen over time, some thinning there that can cause some of these symptoms. So that's one that's kind of surprising. Nocturia is another one. So people will say, I get up, you know, four or five times a night to go to the bathroom. And that can mean you have sleep apnea. It's a less common symptom. You know, usually people with sleep apnea are coming in with the, their spouses, they're saying, they're snoring really loud. Um, and I know there's gasping or, or pauses in the breathing, things like that. But nocturia is kind of a, a an insidious one, but it, it definitely you know, is there where if we treat severe sleep apnea, it can get a whole lot better. People will say, I just thought I was getting up that many times into the bathroom because I was getting older or with my prostate or whatever. And mm-hmm. it turns out I get, went from four bathroom visits now down to zero or one because I treated my sleep apnea. So, you know, um, that's one of the things that people are surprised by. Um And for narcolepsy, it's usually the main one is the daytime sleepiness. Sometimes the vivid dreams, uh, they can have almost a whole other life in their dream. You know, it it can feel so real that it feels almost like they're living two different lives one in their dream life and then their regular life. Um, Oh, wow. So, yeah.
0: Um, What about the occurrences of the various things you see? Like, so is narcolepsy on the rise or stable? How about sleep apnea, restless leg, and the other common phenomena you experience?
1: Um, sleep apnea is on the rise, <laughs> and some of that's due to uh, obesity. Um, I would say narcolepsy tends to, again, cluster. I think the only reason I would say it's also rising is we're getting a little bit better about diagnosing it. We're get, It's getting a little bit more attention, and so the more people that it's on their radar hopefully people will not have to search quite as long before they you know get that diagnosis um restless legs i'm not sure i think that that's been pretty stable i, I think it's the incidence or you know has been has been about the same as as normal um right whereas in the past rather and insomnia that that can kind of insomnia can is is tricky <laughs> that goes mm. back and forth depending on what type of insomnia you're talking about. Everybody has times where they have difficulty, you know, initiating or maintaining sleep. That's, I, I don't really call that true insomnia. Everybody's going to have a, not, a bad night here or there,
0: um, right.
1: you know, so that one's trickier.
0: What, what kind of people come into the sleep lab? Is it all over the place? Or do you see certain populations more than others? Or, you know, there's certain conditions that tend to cluster in certain populations. Um.
1: Well, we we get uh, we get a fair share of narcolepsy here because we're kind of the last stop <laughs> for that um and we do see a lot of sleep apnea. Certain doctors are more in tune to it and really look for it and really understand sort of the health benefits of treating it and the risks of not treating it. So, certain primary care doctors, but also cardiology, because there are so many different um, cardiovascular, negative cardiovascular effects. It's a lot of wear and tear on your heart to have sleep apnea. So, you know, cardiology, cardiologists know if they've got a patient that's never been asked about, um, about their sleep or about their snoring, that that's a low hanging fruit for them to, to go get a sleep study and to, you know, see if, if, if we can, treat that and kind of help things overall. Resistant hypertension too, 80% of people with resistant hypertension have sleep apnea. Um, so if you have somebody, you know, primary care um, practitioners, if they if they have somebody where they, you know, they've tried an ACE inhibitor, they've tried an ARB, they've tried a, you know, they're, they've gone through four different medications, they're upping the dose and, and then they're now on these different therapies and their blood pressure still uncontrolled. Um, best thing you can do at that point is send them for a sleep study and make sure that it's, n- you're not, you're not missing that um, because that will help to get that resistant hypertension under control.
0: Yeah. I had a question about sleep studies. So, you know, years ago I was told to go do one and, you know, I'm like, I sleep very late for instance. I go to bed like three in the morning. And I just been going to bed mm-hmm. at three for a long time. And they were like, Oh, you got to be in here by eight o'clock. And, you, know, you need to be asleep at nine and we'll kick you out at six in the morning. And I thought, how is that going to work? I'm not in my environment <laughs> with my pillows and my bed, and completely different times than I normally go to sleep. I mean, so do you run into that or is it people come in and it works just fine to do the sleep study or do they say, I, I can't sleep in this place? Or I mean, what's it like for people that have to come in and do that?
1: Yeah. It, sleep studies are tough because, most people are going to have what's called a first night effect. I mean, you go camping and you hear every little cricket and every rustle of the leaves or everything. Your first night camping, you're not going to sleep. You're going to sleep pretty terribly, but you rebound the next night because now your brain knows, okay, I'm camping. I hear the rustle of the leaves. I hear the river going by. This is all normal. So we have this hypervigilance when we're in a place where we're not familiar with already that's sort of interfering with our ability to sleep. And then what you're talking about is, you already have sort of this delayed phase where you don't sleep until later. Um, what I, Our sleep clinic, the one that we use, is similar in that they like you there at 830, and they'll hook you up to everything, but you don't have to go to sleep until you're ready. Well, that still would be a very long time for you if you're used to going <laughs> to bed at 3 in the morning. <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's almost an entire day. So what, what I usually do is if I had somebody who's really off of their typical schedule is, you know, call over there and say, look, this person, you know, doesn't normally go to bed until 3am. Can we alter it a little bit so it's at least close to what their normal sleep schedule is, is like? Because like you said, mm-hmm. you know, you, I couldn't fall asleep at four in the afternoon. I mean, that's basically what we're asking you to do if we told you to go to bed at right. nine and you're used to three. So um right. we do you can sort of um make special requests, at least at at our at the sleep clinic that we use, to try to get it to look like a more natural night for you. And it will affect, you know, how long it takes you to go into REM sleep and that type of thing. So it's important to get a typical picture, I think.
0: Well, what what can you do to make it uh, more conducive for people to sleep? So that you mentioned one thing is you know maybe you can do it later. Uh, I don't know. Do you play nature sounds or do you have fans going or like what? You know, has the clinic yeah, invested time and effort in trying to make it the most sleep-inducing environment possible?
1: First of all, it's really good to have great sleep techs, and there are a lot of them out there that make you feel really. And and the ones that our are clinic are fantastic. It makes you feel really at home, you know and and this sleep lab is set up, you know, in a hotel. So you, it's a comfortable environment. It's not a sterile lab. I think that helps. We also try to encourage patients, bring your own pajamas, bring the blanket that, you know, bring things that make you feel at home, you know, and, and r- routines that relax you at home. I tell patients, be as sleepy as you can. Go for an extra workout that day. You know, tire yourself out so that your your brain, you know, even though it might want to be vigilant, um, you know, has to give it up eventually. So, those are mm. some things. And, uh, you know, sometimes I wish we could send everybody two nights in a row because the second night's only going to give us better information than the first. But you, you do the little things that you can to make it as close to normal as possible.
0: You, you feel like you're getting good data because of the first night's yeah. sleep effect and because of
1: you do. You know, the clinic in your foreign environment? You know, there are just some things that, you know, well, you know, that's probably because of first night, but you still, you still get a treasure trove of information from a sleep study. It's pretty, pretty impressive what you can get.
0: You know, uh, is all this shared with the person and, you know, what are some things that maybe people wouldn't even think that you can learn from a sleep study that you guys learned?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, they come back for follow-up and I uh we spend a lot of time going over the study in detail with them, showing them the different stages of the sleep. There's something called sleep architecture which is how you pass through each stage of sleep and how much time you spend in each in each stage. So there's REM sleep but then there's three stages of non-REM sleep and one and two and three you know, very creatively named. (laughs) And um, N1 is very light, light sleep. N2 is deeper, light sleep. And N3 is that, you know, slow wave, delta you know really deep sleep so we can actually because you're wearing those eeg leads and we're getting that brain wave activity we can show you where how you go through each stage in what order is that normal do you have any awakenings when you're not supposed to out of slow wave you should always pass through the the gate of lighter sleep on the way out Um, and so we can look at all of that we can see when you're dreaming and for how long most people, you know, have shorter dream cycles in the first half of the night, longer dream cycles in the second half of the night toward the morning. Uh, so that's all pretty interesting. There's lots of respiratory data, obviously, you know, cause one of the purposes of sleep studies, too, is to rule out sleep apnea. So we get to see your oxygen levels, how you're breathing during the night, if you have pauses and those types of things, heart rate. Uh, pe- we can tell if you're having reflux, um, if you're having you know things like that as well so you know and of course they also look for odd behaviors at night are you acting out your dreams and things like that
0: hmm. All right. um i guess a couple uh quick things any any urban myths or misconceptions people have that are super common about uh you know doing a sleep study or sleep in general
1: hmm. well well lots of lots of urban myths about sleep in general i mean i think one of them is that everybody needs 8 hours very individualized so you know some people do fine on six and other people need nine so I think in the media these days it's easy just to generalize it or average it out but that's all it is is an average so um, I think sometimes that can create problems for people who are really trying to get their eight hours and now they feel pressure to get their eight hours or all these bad things are going to happen. And maybe they're a person that, you know, it's fine on six and trying to get eight, just Creates two hours of insomnia, and then there's mm. frustration, and then it builds a problem that need not have been there to begin with. Uh, so, I think that's one of the common misconceptions. But on the other hand, we have people that aren't giving themselves an a ample opportunity to sleep, and that's a big problem too. Because if you're working two jobs and you're up until you know three in the morning, and then you, you by the time you get home, you still need some me time, so you watch a couple of episodes of. You know, something on Netflix, and and, and then you got to get up and do it all over the next day. You know, that's a really dangerous situation as well. You're not giving yourself yeah. that that opportunity to sleep. So two different sides of the coin, and that's the interesting part of sleep medicine is we we get to see both. We get to see you know I can't sleep, and we get to sleep see I can't wake up. You know. So. <laughs>
0: Well, very good. So, what are what are some um, resources for listeners? You know, like not everyone's local to you and can go to the sleep clinic, but uh, you know, what are, if people want to reach out and find out more? What do you? What's your suggestion?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say if you're having an issue and you've you know talked to your primary care person about it, I mean, there's there's usually somewhere in your area a sleep specialist. <clears throat> Uh, of some sort. And they're really good at doing a very thorough history and assessment, deciding if you need a study, what study is appropriate for you, and and really diving into all of that information and being able to explain it to you. Um, as far as narcolepsy is concerned, I would say resources from narcolepsy are Narcolepsy Network, Wake Up Narcolepsy, wake up narcolepsy project sleep national sleep foundation things like that and finding your support group there's facebook support groups there's local support groups you know for people with narcolepsy that are really helpful um you know there um but yeah seeing a sleep specialist is a great way to go um you'll you'll get a a good thorough evaluation you really know you know kind of which direction to go with, with your complaints or your, your symptoms and, and can give you a good evaluation and, and treatment and management. Okay.
0: Well, very good. Well, Ellen, I appreciate you coming on and I learned a lot of interesting stuff. It's been a great call. And thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, Stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.